According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Nothing we said before was recorded. Is that correct? All right. Now people listening on the MP3 are wondering, what goes on before they start recording? We are in Proverbs chapter 4. Proverbs chapter 4. Before we begin, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer to uh, humble our heart to the authority of the Word of God. Shall we pray? Father, we do come before you once again, thankful for your faithfulness, thankful for your blessings. Father, thankful that we have an opportunity to assemble together this morning. We ask for your hand of blessing upon us, your hand of protection, Father, that if anyone wants to pull up out front and jump out and start doing something ridiculous, Father, it's, well, it's in your hands. Thank you for being faithful. We give you the praise and glory, Father, for how you protect your children at all times. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. All righty. Proverbs chapter 4, as we uh, got a start on it last week, we noticed Proverbs 4 begins with a collective address to plural sons, plural sons, and this is quite a bit different because up till now we've seen it in the singular, up till now we've seen the expression as my son, and uh, the rec- when it talks about your father and your mother, do not neglect the teachings of your father and your mother, for example, the, the pronouns there for your, your father, your mother, uh, are all in the singular, and uh, that's consistent with, of course, the term son being in the singular. Well, here, though, we have it in the plural, and it's going to happen four times in this section, 4, 1, 5, 7, 7, 24, and 8, 32. In all those references, the uh, expression uh, becomes plural then, and the associated pronouns that go with it are all going to be plural. When it says, hero sons, the instructions of a father, and give attention uh, the, the imperative here is going to be in the plural, and give attention is going to be in plural, that you, y'all, may gain understanding as well, that all the appropriate pronouns and, and verbs uh, then become pluralized. <clears throat> Secondly, we talked about the nature of lakach, under, under subpoint B, and the aspect of lakach, which is both teaching and persuasion. We realize that the Word of God should be received persuasively. The Word of God should be received uh, personally. And it's given that way. It's given persuasively. It's given personally. It has to be received persuasively and received personally as well. So sound teaching is given and must be taken persuasively and personally. It's what sets apart the Word of God from any earthly subject matter, any secular studies or different things there where you're simply gathering information, you're learning data, you're, you're studying particular facts, uh, you're memorizing a list of state capitals or whatever, and so you memorize the list and you gather information. But you're not taking it personally and you're not being persuaded by that information because that information is not alive and powerful the way the Word of God is. And we have a, a huge distinction to be drawn there. We'll talk about that as well in uh, subpoint F. Thirdly, the birth of Solomon was a tender occasion for David and Bathsheba. And this is the reference here in verse 3. When I was a son to my father, tender and the only son in the sight of my mother, then he taught me and said to me, let your heart hold fast my words. Keep my commandments and live. And I think it is significant. One, one of the things I haven't really stressed 
as much as maybe we ought to have, is the wisdom that Solomon had before he obtained the extra wisdom, before the, the famous episode when the Lord said, well, tell me whatever you want, I'll give it to you. And Solomon very humbly said, well, I need wisdom to be a king and to lead your people. And God answered that prayer, and God gave him you know, super abundant wisdom beyond anything we could ask or think. But even prior to that, Solomon was a man of wisdom. He was a young man of wisdom. And how did he how did he have the wisdom to ask for more wisdom? You know, he wouldn't have asked that if he had not already been a man of wisdom. And so a verse that comes to my mind comes out of 1 Kings, and uh, we spot it there in, uh, in chapter 1. Let me grab that just quickly, and then we'll get back to where we are this morning. But in 1 Kings chapter 1, when David is still alive, before he dies, and he, and he says this, he says this to his son, and uh, calls him a wise man. And, uh, and so that becomes, um, I think, significant also, all right? Um, and of course, now I'm not spotting it. Well, that'll teach me. Okay, well, I will tell you what, I will find it for next week because that's, uh, that's a verse I don't want to let go. All right, anyway, that was point C, and we dealt with that. The birth of Solomon was a tender occasion. Point D, David's recovery from the sin unto death entailed full repentance and teaching others the hard lessons learned. And this is what we spent the bulk of our time with last week, detailing the sin unto death and how, how close David was to dying. Right there at that moment when he confesses, when he repents, when he says, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said that uh, his sin has been taken away, he shall not die. And it was that close to the sin and the death and the process there. And I think when we look at Second Samuel chapter 12, that becomes very clear. Uh, when we look at Psalm 51 and his repentance, when he, when he writes that psalm about creating me a clean heart, restore me with a willing spirit, and, uh, and the different aspects there, when he says, I will instruct sinners in the way. It becomes a teaching opportunity. And we all should have that teaching opportunity when God has so graciously brought us through the season of darkness and brought us to the place of repentance where we are. And so the, uh, the details there that we spent some time talking about. Finally, we left off with point E, although I don't think I gave you the Kana vocabulary, so there it is on this slide. The number one lesson David ever taught Solomon was acquire wisdom. All right, Kana is the verb. And he's told here to kane chachma. Chachma is our term for wisdom that we've been studying this whole time, but acquire wisdom. And five times that it jumps out at you when you're looking in these verses, verses five and seven. But the verb is kana, Q-A-N-A-H is how you spell it when you transliterate it into the English. Kana, number 7069 is the Strong's Concordance number, 84 Old Testament uses. So when you look at all those, you realize there's a considerable variety in all the ways that you can cut off something. It has several different uses depending on the context and depending on the, the situation in that chapter, how it's being used. And kana simply means acquire, to get something, all right? And we, as I illustrated last week, we can get something a whole lot of different ways. We can buy it, we can steal it, we can, we can build it, we can give birth to it. We can, uh, there's any number of ways that we can get something depending on what it is, all right? And, and the, the, some, so sometimes it's translated purchase, all right? Because in the context, it's obvious 
that, that money was spent and, and something was purchased. And there's nothing wrong with using the verb kana to, uh, to indicate something that you purchased. All right? And if, you know, think of the last thing you went to the store and you got. Well, you bought it, you purchased it, but you're not wrong if you just say you got it. Or the, the last child you birthed, you, you got a daughter. All right? I didn't purchase her, I didn't steal her, but I got her. Okay? And, and, and that's the nature of this. And Kana is going to become important for us when we get to chapter 8 because it speaks of an acquiring, God acquired wisdom. And Proverbs 8 talks about how Yahweh acquired wisdom. And that becomes a big problem theologically for a lot of people. Because if God is eternal and never changes, then he did not acquire wisdom in the sense of, well, he was less wise, now he's more wise. That's not what we're talking about in in Proverbs chapter 8. And how did he acquire wisdom? Well, we're going to look at that context, and we're going to see childbirth throughout that process. We're going to see the birthing of wisdom. We're going to see how he was brought forth, how he was delivered, how he was acquired as a son is acquired, and uh, the different different views there. This is not a a Mormon view or a, or a Jehovah's Witness view that, that posits God the Son with a finite beginning. God the Son is infinitely with the, with the Father from all eternity, but His humanity is what's finite. It's His human nature that had a beginning. And we're going to discuss that. When did the human nature of Jesus Christ begin? And it's going to take us in some pretty deep studies because no one who even cares to think about it ever bothers to think that it might have preceded the, the manger. It might have preceded the pregnant virgin. That Jesus, the human nature of Jesus Christ might have preceded the actual incarnation where the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. All right? It doesn't say the Word became human. It says the Word became flesh. And when did he, did he already prior to that have a human nature? Is there a passage of Scripture that tells us this? As a matter of fact, <laughs> Proverbs chapter 8. And that's what we're going to detail. Because time and time again, we have the today I have begotten thee, but those verses don't tell us when that today was until you get to Proverbs chapter 8. All right, so last week was the week that we took a look at that. We highlighted the different uses of kana, as you see there. I don't know how well that shows up. Yeah, highlighted with a green. Decided to go green this morning. Uh, but all the kanas in the Hebrew text and all the acquires or the final little get, get understanding there, all of those uh, deal with either the verb or a cognate form that, uh, that we deal with here in this passage. All right, for today then, point F. Wisdom is embraced as a son to a mother for a foundational grounding in the truth. So this is point F before we move on the last point. Before we move on to main point two, wisdom is embraced as a son to a mother for a foundational grounding in the truth. Starting young, it's so important that we build the pattern early, that we build the pattern young. That way they have a foundation to return to, all right? Even when he is old, he shall not depart from it. Uh, that is, even when he is old, he has a place to return to if he so chooses. If, in fact, you have grounded him in the word of God from the youngest of ages. So we're going to see this in verse 6, in verse 8, in verse 9. We're going to see the intimacy expressions. We're going to see the terminology that reflects um, an expression of uh, affection, all right? That we would otherwise call a hug, okay? 
when you ask your daughter to give you a hug and she says, why? All right, well, because it is a demonstration of my affection and my fondness for you. And it is normal between a father and his daughter. There's nothing creepy about it in terms of these things, all right? And uh, there is no shortage of illustration in the book of Proverbs, in Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes, throughout wisdom literature, throughout the Psalms, for example, of what um, chavak is all about, all right? The Hebrew verb here is chavak. Excuse me. Well, it's dangerous in a season like this to attempt Hebrew gutturals. Although sometimes I think if you have a fair amount of phlegm, it's to your advantage to pronounce some of these Hebrew gutturals. And the C-H is the guttural ch. The uh, Q is more of the harsher k. So chavak. All right, 2263 is the Strong's number. And, uh, and it's interesting because we have all these hugging expressions. And, and what we learn very quickly is there's hugs and then there's hugs. All right, that there's... Um, there's the mother-son hugging, all right, embracing of a mother and a son, and the, the tenderness there uh, in which the bosom language of Scripture is entirely different than uh, the man and the woman uh, sexual uh, embracing and caressing and fondling, and bosoms in that context are a different aspect, same bosoms, but a different application when it comes to man and woman as opposed to mother and boy. And what we have here is mother and boy, mother and child, all right? And uh, so, first of all, let's start with verse 6, verse 8, and verse 9. Let's see these terms and what we're looking at. Verse 6, do not forsake her and she will guard you. Love her and she will watch over you. So we have the uh, negative imperative and the positive imperative. They are placed in parallel, all right? So we understand that they are equivalent expressions. Loving means not forsaking and vice versa. Uh, Down to verse 8, prize her and she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. And there again is the parallel between prizing her and embracing her. Showing her your affection as she shows you her affection in uh, the returning of the hug or the mutual hugging or the mutual embracing as... uh, as we deal with it. Here is our embracing, is the chavak. And uh, it's kind of hidden a little bit because it's got a tau in front of it and it's got the suffix on the end of it. I don't know if I can highlight the whole word or just the, the individual letters. But there it is, all right? Just the individual letters there, almost. Thank you for letting me practice on my new toy. There we go. I'm not entirely certain that the inventor of the touchpad is an unbeliever, but it's, uh, it is a frustrating device to learn how to use this uh, touchpad thingy. All right. But if she will honor you if you embrace her. These are the terms of intimacy that we have here, all right? Prizing her. What does it mean to prize her? Okay? To value her, to demonstrate. I mean, a prize like... You know, Robert and all his prize fish that he's caught over the years, right? Robert Sterling, you go to his, he's got these fish on the wall mounted there. Well, that's something, those are prizes. Those are, um, you're, you're proud of those. Those are great big things that you, that you caught. 
And so you prize those things. And, and this is the thing. Do you prize your mother? Do you embrace her? Do you publicly demonstrate that this is, uh, this is an object of your love and your affection and your consideration? Okay? Do you prize your wife? Do you prize your husband? Okay? And as I told Robert at his wedding service, you don't, you don't stuff her and hang her on the wall. All right? But you do visibly demonstrate that she is the most important thing in your life. And that should be evident. So prize her and she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. She will place on your head a garland of grace. You know, do you, do you dress your children? Of course you dress your children. How do you dress your children? She will present you with a crown of beauty. So these are the expressions in verse 6, verse 8, and verse 9 that we're paying attention to when it comes to this kind of embracing. All right? Another example in 2 Kings 4.16 of a mother and a son. In fact, this came in a prophetic message. 2 Kings 4 and verse 16. I shall turn there. In fact, let me just, as long as I have my toy to play with, let's use this. All right, and here is Elisha the prophet. And uh, ministry here, and uh, with the Shunammite woman. Larger context for this. All right. There came a day when Elisha passed over to Shunam, where there was a prominent woman, and she persuaded him to eat food. So it was as often as he passed by, he turned in there to eat food. We would view this as an illustration of, say, a hospitality ministry or a, or a mercy-showing gift in the church age, all right? It's not the church age, it's not a gift, but it's a pattern, it's an illustration we might learn from. <clears throat> so she said to her husband, Behold now, I perceive this is a holy man of God passing by us continually. Please let us make a little walled upper chamber and let us set a, a bed for him there and a table and a chair and a lampstand and a, and a, and a we might say, a, Microsoft Surface Pro 3 with a Logos Bible software installation. And um, there it shall be when he comes to us that he can turn in there. All right? In other words, what they're doing is they are sanctifying a particular room and they are setting it apart. And they're dedicating it, saying, we're going to forsake the normal use of this room and we're going to make it available anytime this man's passing through town. And it becomes a, 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 a function of their hospitality, of their grace provision. And so one day he came there and turned into the upper chamber and he rested and he said to Gehazi, a servant, call this Shunammite. And so this is the idea of grace being responded with grace. He's not trying to pay her back. You can't purchase something after the fact that's been freely given. But you can respond in grace to grace that's been freely given. And this way it's multiplied and, and uh, the Lord is, is uh, glorified in both circumstances. So he said, uh, so when he had called her, she stood before him and he said to him, see now, say now to her, behold, you have been careful with us and all this care. What can I do for you? Would you be spoken for to the king or to the captain of the army? And she answered, I live among my own people. So he said, well, what then is to be done for her? And Gehazi answered, truly, she has no son and her husband is old. You know, I mean, think big, <laughs> okay? Because this is the kind of stuff our God does. And uh, so he said, call her. And when he had called her, she stood in the doorway. And then he said, at this season next year, you will embrace a son. That's Chavak. 
That's the verb that we're looking at in our passage today. And she said, no, my Lord, O man of God, do not lie to your maidservant. (laughs) And yet, just as the prophet had announced, the woman conceived and bore a son in that season the next year as Elisha had said to her. Now, there is some thought and some tradition maybe that this is the prophet Habakkuk that's being born because Habakkuk is uh, the Hebrew word that means hugged one, right? Or hugger, the embraced one. And based on the name of Habakkuk, there's a legend or a tradition. I just don't think it works out well. I don't think that the, the, the dating works out well between that. But anyway, that's a different study. So when the child was grown, the day came that he went out to his father, to the reapers, and he said to his father, my head, my head. And he said to his servant, carry him to his mother. And, and then here's what happens. And here's a promised son, and here's a gift, and here's a blessing. But now it seems like this boy is going to die. All right, And this now becomes... Uh, it becomes a, uh, a test to uh, the widow or to the, to the woman. And he actually does die here in verse 20. So when he had taken him and brought him to his mother, he sat on her lap until noon and then he died. So this now becomes a test. And Elisha is going to come and the boy will be restored to physical life. And, uh, and a, neat, uh, a neat application there. All right. Well, that's Second Kings chapter 4. And we should be familiar with that background. But there's an illustration of a mother and a son and an embracing and a prophetic message. You will embrace a son this year. And I think that's compatible with what we're looking at in Proverbs 4. We're talking about a boy who was tender in the sight of his uh, father, the only son in the sight of his mother. You recall Bathsheba lost a son in the divine discipline of the adultery and the, and the, the murder of Uriah, but then Solomon was the son that replaced that, that son, and that was the, the issue and what we've been looking at in this context. All right. Now, there are other illustrations like Proverbs 5.20, Ecclesiastes 3.5, Song of Solomon, where the embracing is not a mother and child embracing, and instead it's, it's a sexual embracing. It's a man and a woman in the, uh, in the context there. Let's look at those. Proverbs 5.20. The very next chapter, we'll be here before you know it. In a larger context here, backing up to verse 15. Well, there's even a context prior to that, but we'll pick up with verse 15. Drink water from your own cistern and fresh water from your own well. And that's a metaphor, of course, telling the man to that uh, God has made provision for his sexual needs. It's not outside of marriage, it's inside marriage. Should your springs be dispersed abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be yours alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. As a loving hind and a graceful doe, let her breast satisfy you at all times. Be exhilarated always with her love. Okay, and This is blunt, this is direct, this is why you're a married man. For why should you, my son, be exhilarated with an adulteress and embrace, that's our term, chavak, and embrace the bosom of a foreigner, all right? That's not your bosom. Your bosom's the bosom you're married to. And the the, the blunt terms here that uh, that a young man has to be grounded in, that a young woman has to be grounded in, so that uh, this activity is placed in the proper boundaries, in the proper place for blessing and not for discipline. For the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord and he watches all his paths. 
so much for the, well, I can do whatever I want to do with my own body argument. It's not your own body. Your ways are before the Lord. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. His own iniquities will capture the wicked. He will be held with the cords of his sin. And I love the, the tandem of expressions there. Right Now, it's not chavak, it's not embrace, but it's a consequence if for the wrong kind of embracing, you end up held, you end up in cords, and you don't realize how binding this is. You don't realize the, the damage that's done or the consequences that follow and the kind of binding or holding that takes place. You know, why do we have the expression to have and to hold, <laughs> Right? Because it's not just the having. Now that you have her, hold her. And that's what the design is in the, in the holding activity. All right? Where else? Not just uh, Proverbs 5, Ecclesiastes 3, 5. There is a time for embracing and a time to shun embracing. All right? And there's a time to chavak and a time to shun chavak. It's similar to what we studied in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. It is good for a man not to touch a woman unless you're married. Okay? And that's the, that's the place for that. Same application there. Song of Solomon 2.6 and 8.3 Let his left hand be under my head and his right hand embrace me. And interestingly enough, when we have those kind of expressions, it comes with it the warnings, right? Time and time again, we have the adjuration. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or by the hinds of the field, that you do not arouse or awaken my love, or awaken love. You can take the my out of it if you'd like. Awaken dode, awaken love until she pleases, okay? This is not ahav love, this is dode, this is physical love. And uh, you can wake it up too early, okay? Don't wake it up too early. There is a time where it needs to be woken up, and that's the, the venue of marriage again, as we talk about. And so we have the warning there. So that's 2.6. The other passage was 8.3. Again, let his left hand be under my head and his right hand embrace me. These are the expressions... And then I want you to swear, O daughters of Jerusalem, do not arouse or awaken love until she pleases. There's a time and a place for that. Not too early. Not too early. All right. Who knows? Someday maybe we'll teach Song of Solomon. Now, some points under this. The parallel in verse 6 says, Do not forsake, but love. Do not forsake, but love. There is a protective function here. It's the protective mother, right? Like the mama grizzly looking out for those cubs. Do not forsake, but love her. She will guard you and watch over you. And there's a value in that. Spiritually speaking, there's a huge value in that. If your mother is oriented to divine norms and standards, if she is prayerfully keeping you before the throne of grace, there's a, there's a blessing in that. She will guard you and watch over you. And these were blessings that were already observed in chapter 2 when we talk about some of the benefit that happens when you take the Word of God internally into your soul. Proverbs 2, verses 10 through 12. 
I don't think till the day I die, and even after that, I will ever forget the tone of voice <laughs> when uh, I was at Fort Hood on a payphone. This is before cell phones, or at least before I had a cell phone. There, uh, I'm on a, I'm in a phone booth on the payphone calling mom, calling my parents really, just checking in, and telling my mother that I met a girl. And right away was a tone of voice that my mother had when she said, oh, (laughs) just like that, oh, and then she said, where did you meet this girl? Okay, and I will never forget that ever. Because she's the mama grizzly, right? She's praying for her children. I'm the oldest. I'm the only one that's left home. I've been overseas and who knows what kind of trouble. And uh, so she wants to know, where did you meet this girl? I said, well, I met met her at Austin Bible Church. She teaches Sunday school in, in Ralph Braun's church. And that was it. That's all mom needed to know. She, oh, okay. Oh, well, that sounds good. Is she, you know, what's, what, what's her name? <laughs> you know, I don't know her name. I'm going to find out. And, uh, and so forth. But that's what I'm illustrating. That's what we're talking about. The, the guarding, the watching over, and uh, the, the, the nonstop prayer that, uh, that we're blessed to uh, engage in on behalf of our children and our grandchildren in, uh, in these cases. All right, Proverbs chapter 2, verses 10 through 12, we talked about this back in this chapter. Wisdom will enter your heart, knowledge will be pleasant to your soul, discretion will guard you, understanding will watch over you, to deliver you from the way of evil, from the man who speaks perverse things. Okay, And this is the benefit you have when you ground your child in the Word of God early, because you aren't always going to be there to watch what happens. You're not always going to be there to say something or do something or, or anything. But if you've planted the Word of God in the soul, the Word of God's going to be there. The Word of God can come alive and spring forth and, and provoke the, the remembrance and can convict the soul where it needs to. All right. Secondly, it says, prize her and embrace her. Prize and embrace her. And these are the tandem imperatives from verse 8. Prize and embrace her. She will exalt and honor you. See, honoring the Word of God prompts the Word of God to honor the true disciple. When we consider what does it mean to honor and what does it mean to be honored, what are the things that, that we crave or what are the things that carnal people crave, the unbeliever craves, under human approbation lust, or under the idolatry of our generation, the cult of self-esteem, <laughs> and what it is that causes human beings to find validation in something whereby, okay, I have worth, I'm special. And, uh, and in this whole component of things, I think Satan has found... And, and, and built a very fertile field in, uh, in our culture, in our, in our generation, with this whole idolatry of, of self-esteem, and built an entire industry around uh, with, uh, with any number of, of support structures involved around helping people feel good about themselves. And, uh, and you're a good person, and you're, whether it's 
your physical attractiveness or whatever else. And this whole industry about I'm okay, you're okay. <laughs> and the whole thing about, um, about me, the idolatry of me. When the Bible says that's not what it is. The Bible says Jesus Christ is the celebrity of the universe. God the Father desires to glorify His Son. And if we choose to become fellow workers with God the Father, then we can spend our life glorifying Jesus Christ. All right? We don't have to worry about our reputation, our names, or some empire we're trying to build for ourselves. We're not the celebrity of the universe. We're not the issue. Now, there may then come a corresponding honoring as we honor Him and He honors us. That's what this passage is talking about. As uh, she will exalt and honor you. So what is it? Do you want the Word of God to honor you? I think we ought to. That's what this passage is talking about. Do we want Jesus Christ to honor you? Ultimately speaking, I want at the judgment seat of Christ, I want to hear that well done, good and faithful servant. And if I don't hear that, then who cares with all the self-esteem I got along the way? <laughs> or whatever other accolades or whatever other praise and whatever. Do you stand and give the long flowing prayers in the marketplace so that you can be uh, appreciated by people? That people get all impressed with, ooh, look how holy they are. Listen to how they pray. Or look at how much money they gave. Or look at all these, look at, look at how much they fast because they've made themselves look miserable. All right, Jesus said we want no part of any of that. Your Father who sees in secret repays. And all of our ministry should be focused on glorifying Jesus Christ. Then, if in fact He glorifies us, if He honors us, then, hey, that's His good pleasure to do. And we will accept it because it comes from Him. All right? So, we have it here in verse 8. We have other passages of Scripture, I think, that address this, that address this very well in terms of uh, 1 Samuel 2.30, uh, John 12.26, 1 Peter 1.7. If we honor the Word of God, the Word of God's going to honor us. And in, you understand that. The Word is the written Word, but it's also the, the living Word. It's also God the Son. How do we honor God the Son? Well, we abide in Him and we abide in His Word. That's how this works. All right, so let's take a look at 1 Samuel 2.30. And uh, there's the principle there. Again, there's a larger context for this. Let's see, do I want to do any of that? Because man, here's a... (laughs) Eli was a piece of work. And and Samuel grew up in his home and Samuel grew up um, ministering before him. But and, and in some ways, Samuel was uh, a better son than his real sons. All right, so here in First Samuel, Samuel's born, and Hannah fulfilled her vow, and she de- and she uh, she uh, designated Samuel to serve the Lord, and she'd visit him once a year when she would go and make her pilgrimages. But Eli's real sons, they were they were a train wreck, right? Um, he heard all that his sons were doing to all Israel, how they lay with the women who served at the doorway of the tent of meeting. I mean, goodness, you're using the ministry to, to your priesthood and, and ministry to, to pray on women that way. Goodness. And then, um, and he hears about it, and is he stopping it? <laughs> is, he, is he executing his own sons? 
which you should have done a long time ago. Okay. What do you do to rapists? What do you do to adulterers? What do you do to, to uh, those that are defiling the image of the Lord? Instead, he just goes to them and says, Why do you do such things, the evil things that I hear from all these people? No, my sons, the report is not good, which I hear the Lord's people circulating. In other words, the story's getting around, circulating, right? You know, it's not good that you're doing it, but it's even worse that it's circulating. It's even worse that the story's spreading around, and it's not good. So, um, verse 25, if one man sins against another, God will mediate for him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? They would not listen to the voice of their father, for the Lord desired to put them to death. See, this is troubling to Eli. So the boy Samuel was growing in stature and in favor both with the Lord and with men. Then the man of God, then a man of God came to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord. Not a happy message here. And uh, these responsibilities, it's a high honor to be serving the Lord and don't abuse it. So did I not indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt in bondage to Pharaoh's house? Did I not choose them from all the tribes of Israel to be my priests, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to carry an ephod before me? Did I not give to the house of your father all the fire offerings of the sons of Israel? Why do you kick at my sacrifice and at my offering, which I have commanded in my dwelling, and honor your sons above me? This is what it is. It's the favoritism. He's honoring his sons above the Lord. He's excusing what they're doing. And the Lord says that you're honoring your sons above me. By making yourselves fat with the choicest of every offering of my people Israel. Therefore, the Lord God of Israel declares, I did indeed say that your house and the house of your father should walk before me forever. But now... Far be it from me, for those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. Behold, days are coming. I will break your strength and the strength of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house. Okay? Now, he's not changing his mind about his promise, but we understand what's happening here in the divine discipline for the house of Eli. There are other lines that will carry the blessing. This line is going to come under judgment. Anyway. The principle, though, from verse 30, I will honor, those who honor me, I will honor. Those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. That's the principle. You want to honor the Lord day by day, he will honor you. That's the principle. God will always honor believers that make the word of God a top priority in their life. John twelve twenty six. anyone serves me he must follow me and where i am there my servant will be also if anyone serves me the father will honor him same principle are you going to honor and glorify jesus christ are you conducting your life in such a way that you're serving the lord you bet the father's going to honor that okay yeah more of a context there but I think we can let that go. All right. And final passage is 1 Peter 1 7. There's a context. The proof of your faith. The proof of your faith. Do you want to honor Jesus Christ? 
See, there's a lot of people that say they want to honor Jesus Christ. They honor him with their lips, but where's their heart? They say they love the Lord, but when the persecution arises, they fall away. When the testing arises, they fall away. They bail quicker than anything. That's why the, the outworking of your faith as you endure your sufferings is so critical. It's huge. It demonstrates. It's the proof of your faith, the demonstration of your faith, the dokimazo approval of your faith. And so in this he greatly rejoiced, even though now for a little while, if necessary, and it is, you have been distressed by various trials, not just one or two little things, all kinds of things, various trials, simultaneously, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So I believe that it's our personal testing that we go through where we are honoring the Lord Jesus Christ. We honor him by staying loyal to him. We honor him by staying the course and serving him. That honors him. And then by consequence, it honors us in the reward, that we're, the treasure that we're laying up in heaven. The eternal reward, as you notice here, praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That may right there be the, the, the biggest hindrance uh, in terms of the carnal-minded believer, they don't want to wait to the judgment seat to get the accolades. <laughs> they want the praise now. They want the big name now. They want all the achievement and glory and all the recognition now. Well, we're not promised anything now. What are you talking about? <laughs> now? In this world? You know what that, what's happening to this world? This world's passing away. In any event. It's like the first Peter five passage. It's when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. You're not promised anything prior to that. The third point, beauty and adornment, beauty and adornment. This is her gift to her son as she dresses him. Beauty and adornment is her gift to her son in verse 9. We've already seen similar blessings to this in chapter 1 and in chapter 3. It's the Word of God that does this. Every time it's God's wisdom that does this. Such as Proverbs 1.9, Proverbs 3.22. Our passage today, Proverbs uh, 4.9. It's going to be taught more clearly in the New Testament. See, in the Old Testament there was so much of the shadow and so much of the ritual and so much of the externals that I think it kind of waited. And not to say that it wasn't a real issue back then. Sarah adorned herself this way. And the example of Sarah is indicated in 1 Peter chapter 3. And Sarah is obviously an Old Testament believer. So the, the, the idea of inner beauty has always been uh, a part of the Christian way of life, Old Testament, New Testament alike. But it's not until the New Testament text that we have the plain uh, revelation that we have, such as First. Timothy 2, 9 and 10, such as 1 Peter 3, 4. That's where it gets absolutely blatant that it's inner beauty that we should be cultivating in terms of our spiritual walk before the Lord. In addition to what we see here in Proverbs 1, 9, Proverbs 3, 22, and Proverbs 4, 9. Okay? Beauty and adornment is her gift to her son. Blessings already observed in chapters 1 and 3 that are going to be taught more clearly in the New Testament. So we see it here in verse 9. 
She will place on your head a garland of grace. She will present you with a crown of beauty. And boy, you take that, and that's specialty. That's something your mother provided. That's something she gave you. Again, it's an indication of her affection and fondness for you, and you for her. Back in Proverbs 1.9, verse 8 says, Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. Indeed, they are a graceful wreath to your head and ornaments about your neck. Okay? Again, that's the, that's the reality. It's a spiritual reality. You're not, you're not gaining a real you know, a, a wreath or a necklace, not in the physical realm. We understand the spiritual beauty of what happens as we take in the Word of God. Chapter 3 and verse 22. My son, let them not vanish from your sight. Keep sound wisdom and discretion, so there will be life to your soul and adornment to your neck. Adornment to your neck. Why are so many of these decorations neck decorations? <laughs> you know, why is that? Makes me wonder. Just a place of beauty, a thing of beauty. All right. First Timothy two, verses nine and ten. Here is orderliness in the assembly, the role of men, the role of women. Why it is that prayer needs to be offered up in political life. So therefore I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. All right, in the context there, not saying that, that makeup is bad or, or uh, any of that. It's, ta- it's emphasizing the spiritual. It's emphasizing the inner beauty as opposed to the outer beauty. Quietly receiving instruction with submissiveness. I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. The different roles and the different things there. First Peter three four. And this is where even if uh, your husband is out of it, he's not walking in the light, he's not spiritually minded. You can non-verbally communicate in ways that uh, speaks volumes. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. What if they're not living in the word of God? Well, they can see it in you. All right? They can see it in you. You become the Bible. You become the, the, the expression of this truth. As they observe, see, they may be won without a word, by the behavior of their wives. The way you conduct yourself becomes the preaching. And notice it's without a word. You're not nagging, you're not preaching, you're not whatever, okay? They observe your chaste and respectful behavior. And your adornment must not be merely external. Okay? There's a place for that, but it doesn't stop with that. 
braiding the hair, wearing gold jewelry, putting on dresses. Okay? This passage is not condemning any of that. You should want to look nice. We all want to look nice. But don't stop with that. Because you can look nice and be the ugliest soul that's ever walked this earth. Okay. That's why it says, let it be the hidden person of the heart. And whose is that? Okay. The hidden person of the heart. The Lord sees the heart and your husband should see your heart. Okay. And the heart of your husband should be trusting in you. That's per Proverbs 31. Yeah, it just boggles the mind sometimes that folks, they, they, they display the things they display. Okay. Physically and everything else. Okay. They bear their souls. Wait a minute. Most people aren't entitled to that. Lord's entitled to that. Your husband's entitled to that. If it's a shepherding aspect for your soul, your pastor will be shepherding your soul. But the Bible makes very clear. Your soul is to be tended. It is to be protected. It is to be preserved. And not to just be thrown out there for the wolves and whoever else. All right, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit. And if you want to rewrite imperishable, how about um, the, 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 the non-sagging, <laughs> the non-wrinkly? Okay, that's what perishable is in terms of our bodies, right? The, the things that droop and sag and wrinkle. Uh, I'm going to stop there. I'm just, I get in trouble. But, but here's the thing. There are, there are, you know, aspects of physical beauty that decay. Not so with the soul. It just gets prettier and prettier and prettier and prettier. Imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of God. In this way, in the former time, that's why I say it's not just a church age reality, holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves with the inner beauty adornment, being submissive to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And to me that example is huge because Sarah ended up in Pharaoh's harem. Okay? Your husband may make all kinds of mistakes. God will protect you. All right. So much I could preach out of that too, because the idea of conditional submission, well, I'll submit if he's walking right. Not what that passage is talking about. In fact, the passage specifically says he's not walking right. Doesn't change your assignment. Okay? Anyway, more aspects there. All right, we will pick up on this. Uh, we'll move on to point two. I think we've got, so we look at 10 through 19. Let me give you a preview where we'll be next week. Hear my son and accept my sayings and the years of your life will be many. I have directed you in the way of wisdom. I have led you in upright paths. See, it's not just preaching. It's not just yelling at your kids and telling them a bunch of do's and don'ts. You're living the walk yourself. You're leading in that path. You're teaching and you're exemplifying the walk of wisdom. When you walk, your steps will not be impeded. If you run, you will not stumble. Take hold of instruction. Do not let go. Guard her, for she is your life. Do not enter the path of the wicked. Do not proceed in the way of evil men. Avoid it. Do not pass by it. Um, Let's see, we've got to get down to verse 19 in this context. 
uh, turn away from it and pass on, for they cannot sleep unless they do evil. Notice there's a, there's a compulsion in this. This is a, a, an addictive lifestyle. This is uh, the nature of fallen humanity in the ways of darkness becomes very compulsive, very life-controlling. They cannot sleep unless they do evil. They are robbed of sleep unless they make someone stumble. For they eat the bread of wickedness and they drink the wine of violence. But the path of the righteous is like the light of the dawn that shines brighter and brighter until either the full day or the perfect day. If you have an old King James Bible there. But the way of the wicked is like darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. All right, so there's two different courses you can take. And the one is very dangerous. You've got to be guarded against it. But as we study it, we're going to see how controlling it becomes, how compulsive it becomes. That if you even, don't even play with it, taking one step on that path and you find you're swept into a, into a set of circumstances that you didn't realize it was taking you to, that's what it does. All right? And if we can identify it properly, then maybe we can come back to the right kind of life and say, you know what? If I was half as dedicated to truth that these people are dedicated to their wickedness, you know, they've got a zeal and a passion and, a, and an enslavement to this darkness. I wish I had half of that over here on the side of the light. Okay? You know, do we, do we treat Bible class like, like a, a drunk treats the, 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 the wine bottle? Like, man, I can't wait. I can't wait. I'm disappointed. This is Tuesday. I can't wait till Wednesday. I wish this was Wednesday. All right. Are we, are we lusting after the, the milk of the word that way? Well, all right. Here's where we'll pick it up next week. Lord willing and rapture pending. Father, I thank you for your faithfulness. I thank you for this time together. I thank you for brothers and sisters that, uh, that have the opportunity to come together on a Wednesday morning like this to study to show themselves approved. I pray, Father, that we would be mindful of these passages, that we would apply them, Father, in grounding our children, our grandchildren, getting them grounded in the truth at the youngest of ages so that the patterns are set, so the principles are laid down. Father, just uh, thank you for being faithful. Thank you for being merciful. And I do thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.